Numbers chapter 12 is our passage today. It's 16 verses, a relatively short chapter in the scope of things in the book of Numbers. And so we're going to begin by reading the chapter in its entirety. And then we'll spend some time working our way through it this morning. Numbers chapter 12. Here's what it says. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to make good sense of this part of the Torah. Help us to know why you inspired your servant Moses to record it for us. Help us to know what use it is for us in our life now. By your spirit, help us to apply it and be changed by it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are several different lessons, I think, that we can take out of this passage, uh, this story in the life of Israel in the wilderness. The ones that I have chosen to focus on this morning have to do with the issues of unity and disunity. And so I've, I've entitled the message this morning, The Cause and the Cure for Disunity. And I've already shared with you my main idea. The only cure for disunity is to find a reason for unity that is more compelling than any of the things that tend to divide us. I think we can see that lesson in many places from Scripture, and this is, is one of them. So just to remind ourselves of where we are in the story of Israel in the wilderness, we remember that, that the Israelites have set out from Sinai. They're on the march from Sinai where they spent uh, quite a while, and they're on their way to the wilderness of Paran. Last week we saw them grumbling about the food that they have been given in the wilderness, forgetting entirely the great grace of God in rescuing them from Egypt and bringing them safely this far on their journey to the promised land. 
And at the end of our time today, as we've just read, at the end of chapter 12, we will see them encamped in the wilderness of Paran, and it will be from there that they will send the spies out into the promised land, and we're going to see that, Lord willing, in, uh, next week in chapters 13 and 14. But this morning, in, in this chapter, in these, in these 16 verses, we're going to talk about unity and disunity, and we're going to talk, first of all, about the cause of disunity, and then we're going to talk about the cure for disunity. And it's really all right there in that main idea. The only cure for disunity is to find a reason for unity that's more compelling than any of the things that divide us. And we do see disunity here in these opening verses of chapter 12, and it's a disunity that occurs right within the family of Moses, isn't it? We see grumbling now, not just from the, the, the people of Israel as a whole, but specifically from Moses' own siblings, Aaron and Miriam, the brother and sister of Moses. And verse 1 tells us that their initial cause of grumbling, or the, the presenting reason for their grumbling, is Moses' wife. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And so the very first question that we're confronted with here in chapter 12 is, who is this woman? Who is this lady that Moses has married? And the reason that we ask the question, of course, is that we've been introduced to at least one of Moses' wives, uh, or, or one wife that he had, Zipporah, right? Remember her? In the opening chapters of Exodus, we read that Moses went out to the wilderness of Midian and, and married a Midianite woman named Zipporah. Not only do we know her name, we know her father's name, Jethro. Uh, at various places, he's called Jethro or Ruel. Um, and, and the general understanding of that is that one of those names, Ruel, is probably a patronymic or, or maybe even a title that he held as the priest of Midian. And his personal name was probably Jethro. Uh, but we know her father's name. We know her brother's name more recently from here in the book of Numbers. Her brother's name is Hobab. Uh, he's one of the guides of Moses. So we know all this stuff about this, this family, this, this father and wife and brother-in-law of Moses. But now here we're introduced to a woman who's merely called a Cushite woman. And so we go, well, who is this lady? One of the suggestions that gets put forward here is that this may actually be a reference to Zipporah herself. And the, the justification for that is generally along the lines that the word translated Cushite doesn't actually mean from the nation of Cush which is identified as, uh, on our maps today as the nation of Ethiopia and Africa, but that the word translated Cushite here actually just means from the family or tribe of a guy named Cushan, who was associated in one place in scripture with the nation of Midian and in some extra biblical sources too. And so there is some slight possibility that this is a reference to Zipporah, but I admit I find that very sketchy at best. And the reason, of course, is that so far Moses always tells us about Zipporah and, and never identifies her as a Cushite, whatever that word means. He always identifies her as the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian, the Midianite, and things like that. And so why here all of a sudden would he start referring to her in a different way than he has referred to her repeatedly before? But so if this is not Zipporah, if this is a different woman, then that leads, leaves us with other questions, doesn't it? What happened to Zipporah? Has Zipporah died and Moses remarried? Have they been divorced, which is a suggestion that some people make, and now Moses is remarried? Or, of course, it's possible, is this just a second wife, right? Uh, polygamy was not something that was unheard of 
although it wasn't as common as some people tend to think it was in ancient Israel. But it was allowed. There are some regulations governing it in the Torah. God doesn't sanction polygamy, but he knew that the hearts of his people were hard, and so he lays down regulations governing it to make sure that women are protected in that situation. And so it's possible, and I think probably the most likely, that this Cushite woman is simply a second wife. But then that leads us to another question. Why did Aaron and Miriam have a problem with her? It says they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. What's interesting, though, is that in the verses that follow, she's not mentioned again. The things that, that Aaron and Miriam actually complain about don't have anything to do, it seems, with the woman herself. And so we're left with this multi-layered issue in the hearts of Aaron and Miriam. And at one level, it does seem to be an issue of some kind of prejudice, right? She is a Cushite, which is not Israelite. Most definitely not Israelite. In fact, even if it doesn't mean from the nation of Cush or Ethiopia, it certainly must mean at least that she's not Israelite. And that's the problem for Aaron and Miriam. We have, to, we have to recognize a couple of things at this point. One is that we see embedded here in this ancient text an evidence of something that still plagues us today, which is racial prejudice, right? And it's important for us to recognize that. Here are Aaron and Miriam who are grumbling against the fact that their brother is married to this African woman, and they're upset about it. At the same time, we have to be careful not to import onto the biblical text our own cultural baggage in which when we hear racial prejudice, we think of one specific type of racial prejudice, which is probably not exactly what was happening here in Numbers 12. Right? But what is clearly happening, given the fact that Moses twice specifies the fact that his wife is Cushite, in other words, he's emphasizing to his readers, here's the problem, here's the problem that my brother and sister had, it's that my wife was a Cushite. By emphasizing that, Moses is saying that their issue is the fact that she's Cushite, the fact that she's not Israelite. And then, given the way they specifically voice their complaint in verse 2, it's not hard to see that probably what they're doing is masking their racial prejudice with a veneer of spirituality. Right? What do they say? Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Which leaves us with this picture of a man and a woman, a brother and sister of Moses, who are not only experiencing some type of racial prejudice, but are also experiencing some kind of spiritual envy or jealousy. And this is cause for division within the family of Moses, and potentially a cause for division within the nation of Israel as a whole. I feel it necessary at this point also to, to, to suggest that maybe Aaron and Miriam are thinking along one particular line of thought. Maybe as they look at Moses and his African wife, the issue is not just race for them, but it's a concern about intermarriage in general. We know, for example, that God had warned his people about intermarrying with the people of Canaan. 
Uh, he mentions that in Exodus. It's going to be mentioned again in Deuteronomy and in, in the books that follow. God regularly warns his people about marrying into other nations. But the emphasis in all of those warning passages always has to do with marrying those who don't follow Yahweh. That's always the issue. The issue is never uh, people from one uh, ethnic background marrying people from another ethnic background, people from one race marrying people from another race. That's never an issue in God's eyes. What is an issue is, is a follower of the Lord marrying someone who's not a follower of the Lord. And of course, in those days, those differentiations followed racial and ethnic lines as much as they did anything else. It's important here to remember that all throughout Scripture, not only here in Numbers 12, but in other places as well. We have examples of godly men and women who are married to people of other ethnicities. Uh, not least, when we come to the lineage of Jesus Christ, we see uh, in his lineage women who were non-Israelite. Rahab, for example, who was a Canaanite, or Ruth, who was from the nation of Moab. And these women are always portrayed as godly women, examples of those who, through faith, came into the family of God. But it's easy for those who can't understand that. It's easy for those who are suffering from other things like, like spiritual jealousy to, to pile up issues like this. And so they look at Moses married to this Cushite woman and they say, look, this is an example of why Moses isn't somebody to be trusted. Moses is no better uh, a, follow, a follower of the Lord than any of the rest of us. He's married to this non-Israelite woman. And they voice it specifically like this, has God only spoken through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us as well? It's a kind of spiritual jealousy, isn't it? That seems to lie at the root of the issues for Aaron and Miriam. And it is actually that spiritual jealousy and that accusation that they level against Moses, which God will, in the following verses, rebuke. They claim that God has spoken to them just as much as he has spoken to Moses. It further seems like the danger that is inherent here is one that's more than just what's going on within the family of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. It seems as though God is concerned that this disunity, this division might radiate outward from that family into the rest of the camp as a whole. Such that by the time we get to the end of chapter 12, the whole camp is, uh, is waiting around for a week while Miriam is outside the camp waiting to be healed. At that point, the whole camp knows what's going on. And the whole camp, uh, in essence, has seen Moses vindicated in that way by God. So here at the beginning of chapter 12, it doesn't seem like the whole camp is grumbling against Moses, but, but the danger of that exists. Mo, uh, Aaron and Miriam, you notice, are speaking to one another about Moses. They are not speaking to Moses. That's one of the telltale signs of what's going on here. They're not having a conversation with Moses about their issues. They're talking about him either to one another or maybe to others. It's division. It's disunity. As we think about that and as we, we think about how this applies to cultures today and to churches today, we're forced to ask the question, to what extent does prejudice divide the people of God today? Right? You've heard it said, haven't you, that uh, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, Right? And we understand to some extent why that is sometimes the case, right? We all have different cultures and different things that we are, are comfortable with in terms of, of the way we sing or the way we worship or the way we celebrate. 
And it could be that, that people who are comfortable in one style of church service might not be comfortable in some other style of church service. And we don't want to throw stones unnecessarily, but I think it's valuable for us to ask the question, to what extent are predominantly white churches, to what extent are predominantly black churches, to what extent are predominantly Hispanic or Chinese or Korean churches predominantly that ethnicity because of preferences and to what extent are they that way because of racial prejudice? It's a tough question, right? But it's something that we have to face, something that we have to ask. And of course, from there, we can expand outward and say that it's not just racial prejudice that is something that we have to be concerned about. We have to ask ourselves, to what extent are we guilty of other kinds of prejudice? To what extent can we be guilty of of economic prejudices, allowing those types of things to divide us? To what extent can we allow uh, other types of differences to divide us? In our culture today, it's politics that divides us as much as anything else, right? And we understand why that is too, right? Because there's so many political issues which are the result of moral beliefs, which them are themselves uh, at least understood to be flowing out of scripture. And so many times our political positions are definitions or descriptions of who we are at our core. And so we hold them very tightly. And that's understandable, isn't it? Everybody got really tense in here all of a sudden. But it's important for us to ask the question, isn't it? Are we unnecessarily allowing political differences to be a division? Understand, too, that the, the, the implication of all this is not that we shouldn't have differences or not that we shouldn't hold strongly to the things that we believe. The issue is, to what extent are we allowing those differences to be the defining thing about us? To what extent are we allowing those differences to cause division, disunity, unnecessarily? At any rate, it's something that we need to think about. We think about spiritual jealousy here, too. Uh, Miriam and Aaron experience this kind of spiritual jealousy of Moses. Has God only spoken through him? Hasn't he spoken through us as well? Do you realize that spiritual jealousy is something that we have to be wary of also? Have you ever looked at someone else and been jealous of their spiritual gifts? Or jealous of their perceived relationship with God? Has it seemed to you that other people have a more intimate relationship with the Lord than you do and you felt a certain kind of jealousy about that? Or maybe you've come at it from the other perspective and you have yourself felt that you have a great relationship with the Lord and felt a certain thankfulness in your heart that you're better than that other person who doesn't have as good a relationship with Jesus, obviously or that your spiritual gifts are better than theirs. It's, it's into this very situation that the Apostle Paul will speak in 1 Corinthians. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. 
Isn't it interesting, in that first part of it, he's, he's talking to those who think less of themselves. I am not an ear, so I don't belong to the body. I'm not an eye, so I don't belong to the body. Right? He's speaking to those who think less of their gifts and, and might have a tendency to feel a spiritual envy of others. But in the second part of the passage, he speaks to those who have spiritual arrogance. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty while our more presentable parts do not require and he goes on from there but the point is simply this God gives us all the precise gifts that he chooses and because he is the one who chooses they're dignified because God is the one who disposes each person is worthy you see and that's precisely the point that God will make to uh, Miriam and Aaron in the verses that follow look at what he says And here we see the cure for disunity. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? What do those two causes of disunity that we've just detailed have in common? That racial prejudice and that spiritual jealousy, what do they have in common? They both proceed from an elevated sense of one's own dignity and worth, right? Isn't that what racial prejudice is? Racial prejudice grows out of a sense that the self and others who belong to the same group as the self are inherently better or more valuable than others. And jealousy over status grows out of a sense of outrage that our own worth has been ignored or devalued, which we see Aaron and Miriam expressing here. And that understanding of the underlying problem explains why Moses' meekness is highlighted in verse 3. Moses is a meek person. Isn't that kind of an odd thing to put there in the middle of the story? Moses is the meekest man on the face of the earth. But you see, the purpose, that, the reason that it's there is to contrast him with Aaron and Miriam. They are the opposite of meek. They're jealous and arrogant and proud. And the solution for them, then, is to learn to have a greater regard for God than to have a regard for their own dignity. God insists that his own close fellowship with Moses should have been an indication to Aaron and Miriam that they should not oppose him. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Notice, God doesn't say to them, hey guys, Moses is all right. He doesn't say to them, listen, Moses is a great guy. Look at all of his great qualities. The reason that God says you shouldn't have opposed Moses is because God sanctions Moses. The reason that Aaron and Miriam should have been afraid to speak against Moses is because Moses speaks to God. In other words, the the location of, of their value should have been on God himself. God is sanctioning Moses. He speaks to him face to face, as it were, mouth to mouth in the Hebrew idiom. He says, Moses beholds my form, which is not to say that Moses sees God. Uh, in his being. We know from other places in Scripture that's not what's happening, but rather that Moses sees God in a clearer way than anyone else does. You see, the, the focus here is on God and God's person. The only cure for disunity is to find a reason for unity that is bigger and more compelling and greater. 
And that's what God is giving to Aaron and to Miriam. He's saying, consider me. You should stop thinking about yourselves. You should stop thinking about your own value. You should stop comparing yourself to Moses. And you should start thinking about me. The result, the the discipline that comes is attached to Miriam, isn't it? Verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And as we've mentioned before, when we were going through the book of Leviticus, uh, that word leprosy, it doesn't mean what we think of as leprosy today. It was just a a catch-all term that referred to any kind of uh, skin disease or any type of, of rash on the skin. In this case, it's something that causes Miriam uh, to to look whiter, paler than she should. Her skin is maybe flaking off in some way, but it's something that's visible and tangible and obvious. Aaron is immediately horrified. In verse 11, he says to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and sinned. And then we see the meekness of Moses, right? Moses there's so many ways that Moses could, could react at this moment. Don't you wish that you were in the story? Don't, can't you think of all kinds of things that you would turn to Aaron and Miriam and say at this moment? The kinds of I told you so types of comments. But we see none of that in Moses. What Moses does is he prays in verse 13. Oh God, please heal her. Please. And I like the way the ESV translates this verse here. Other translations will say things like, uh, please heal her, I pray, or things like that. But, but the, the ESV is deliberately redundant. Please heal her, please. And that's exactly how the Hebrew is. That, that beseeching, that please is repeated more than once. I don't think there's any other place in Scripture that has that precise construction. And the emphasis of it, the implication of it, is that Moses is begging. Moses' heart is on display here. Please, please heal her. Sometimes when we read the stories about Moses in the Bible, uh, we, we kind of get a sense of somebody who is powerful and strong. And, and um, maybe, you know, there are times certainly when he comes off as arrogant or, or full of himself. But I think when we read it that way, we're misunderstanding who he is. There are times when he sins. Certainly we're going to read about some of those before the book of Numbers is over. But here we see who Moses is. We see his heart. Please heal her. Please. Moses becomes the mediator for his sister and his brother. By the way, have you ever wondered as you read this story, why is it that Miriam is the one struck with leprosy and not Aaron? I confess I don't know the answer to that for certain. The the passage doesn't tell us. But I think we can make a couple of assumptions. One is that uh, perhaps what God is doing here is he understands that Aaron is the high priest and, and so much of the religious life of Israel is on Aaron's shoulders that if Aaron is struck down with leprosy, then all of the sacrificial system of Israel will be put on hold and that can't happen. But I think there's probably another reason as well. And that is that you know, we've already seen Aaron demonstrate himself to be more of a follower than a leader anyway. Remember the story of the golden calf in Exodus? Everything about that story shows Aaron not as an instigator of trouble, but as someone who just kind of goes along with it. And I wonder if that's what was happening behind the scenes here too. I wonder if Miriam was the the stronger one of the two, and she is the one who kind of instigates the trouble, and Aaron just goes along with it. And so it's Miriam who experiences the discipline of the Lord. I don't know if that's the case, but I wonder if it is. At any rate, it is Miriam who is struck with this discipline from the Lord. And Moses intercedes. Moses becomes the mediator. He prays for her healing. 
And God grants Moses' request. But he has a caveat, doesn't he? And then he, he makes this interesting statement. The Lord says to Moses in verse 14, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. What's going on there? We have no example in Scripture where a father ever spits in the face of his daughter. We have no, no regulations or laws in the Torah that help us understand that. But I think what God is doing here is he's explaining to Moses the reality of the situation. He's saying to Moses, in essence, imagine a scenario in which a woman does something so shameful or dishonoring to her father that in order to preserve honor, her father spits in her face and, and by that demonstrates that she is dishonored. In that situation, her dishonor would be known to everyone. And if, and if that is the response to human dishonor, how much more when someone has dishonored me? That's what God's saying. Which reminds us again what the real point is. The real issue here is not that Miriam and Aaron have dishonored Moses. The real issue is that Aaron and Miriam have dishonored God. That's what it's all about. And that teaches us, again, where the source of unity is. The thing that can overcome division, the thing that can overcome disunity, is not in understanding each other better or having better dialogue. The thing that overcomes disunity and division is having a greater vision of God, having a vision of God that overcomes, that is greater than all the things that tend to divide us. The only cure for disunity is to find a reason for unity that's more compelling than any of the things that tend to divide us. And so as the story goes on, I think the way to understand it is that God immediately grants Moses' request, and he does heal her. But you remember that, that the Levitical laws surrounding those who were struck with leprosy required often several weeks of observation. In fact, if you go back into Leviticus and read how the priests were to handle those who had leprosy, even after they're thought to be healed, they're to be put in observation for seven days and then checked again. And then actually, I think there's another seven days after that that they're supposed to wait before the person is actually declared healed, and then they bring certain sacrifices and offerings and things like that. So the effect of this story is that God is saying, Moses, I will grant your request. I will heal Miriam. But just so that everybody knows that it is not a light thing to dishonor the Lord your God, she will be in isolation for a week, and the whole camp of Israel will sit and wait. And that's what happens. They sit and wait. And so at this point, even if the, the disunity, even if, even if the grumbling of Aaron and Miriam hasn't proceeded outside that immediate family unit, by the end of the week, the effect is that the entire camp of Israel knows we're all waiting on Miriam. And why are we all waiting on Miriam? Because she spoke against the man who speaks to God face to face. Here is a cause for unity amongst the people of Israel. The cure for disunity today is the same as it was then. There must be a higher consideration. We must find a reason for unity that is stronger than our reasons for division. And the person of God provides us with that. The only cure for disunity is to find a reason for unity that is more compelling than any of the things that tend to divide us. This is the story of Numbers 12, but the gospel carries this even one step further. 
The gospel carries on in this vein of giving us a reason for unity that's more compelling than the things that divide us. Consider Jesus of Nazareth. Consider the followers that flocked to Jesus. Consider how different they were. I mean, within the the group of the 12, the original disciples of Jesus, you have, on the one hand, a person like Matthew, who was a tax collector, right? An agent of the Roman government in cahoots with the Roman, the hated Roman government, Matthew. And you have Simon the Zealot, who was an Israelite nationalist who hated the Roman government so much that he was willing to commit acts of terrorism against it. You can't get further apart on the political spectrum than that. And yet they came together to follow Jesus. They followed Jesus. And of course, you can go beyond that too. You know, we're, we're studying the book of Acts in our Sunday school hour and on Sunday mornings. And we're seeing already how the group of the first Christians became a more and more diverse group. Initially, we see how the, the, the church is composed both of Hebrew-speaking Jewish people and Greek-speaking Jewish people, which was a division, a difference, a, a potential cause for disunity. And yet they all come together to follow Jesus. And just today, we saw how the gospel spread into the regions of Samaria. And we know the differences between the Samaritans and the Jews in the first century. They hated one another. And yet they come together to follow Jesus. And as the book of Acts progresses from there, we're going to see, it, to see the gospel go into the Gentile world and see that, that the difference between Jew and Gentile is not a strong enough division except that Jesus can overcome it. And this then becomes a major theme throughout Paul's writings, that in Christ there is now therefore no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, but we are all unified in Christ. The question is, why? What is it about Jesus that unifies people across these types of divisions? And what is it today that can unify us? I mean, even within this small church, While certainly we can, if we spent time, find all kinds of things that we share in common other than Christ, if we spent the same amount of time, we could also find all kinds of things that from the world's perspective ought to keep us apart. And yet we are together as we follow Jesus. So what is it? What is it about Jesus that draws us all together? Why are all these people willing to lay down their differences when confronted with Jesus? And the answer is, of course, that Jesus is a better mediator even than Moses. Moses, whose heart is so broken for his sister that he begs God to heal her. This woman who had spoken against him so recently. But Jesus is a better mediator even than that. Listen to how Hebrews compares Moses and Jesus in light of this story from Numbers. Listen to these words from Hebrews. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. He's quoting now from Numbers 12. For he, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house 
whose house we are if we hold our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. But here's where the story gets interesting. While, Mo, while God um, defends the dignity of Moses here in Numbers chapter 12, if we could put it that way, he doesn't defend his own dignity in Christ, does he? Christ comes and looks at the dishonorable state of his people. He looks at us mired in our divisions and rebellions, entirely deserving of being disciplined as Miriam was here in Numbers 12, entirely deserving to be disciplined by our Heavenly Father, entirely deserving to be spit upon, entirely deserving to be cast out for our sin. And instead of doing it, Jesus humbly offers himself in our place. He himself is the one who is spit upon. He himself is the one who is cast out of the camp so that we could be brought into the place of honor. And I think it's being confronted with this better mediator, this substitute Jesus. This is what causes us to be united across our divisions. This is why people can come together and find unity in him. The only cure for disunity is to find a reason for unity that's more compelling than any of the things that tend to divide us. Consider this Jesus then this morning as we continue to worship him.